This is episode 9 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at As usual, the hard part of making angry tech news is finding solid stories and writing decent rants about them. There are a lot of tech news out there that are corporate press releases, stories that are nothing more than rumor mongering, and the stories that cite unnamed sources, a code word for we just made this up that signals that the next piece of information you hear will be a complete fabrication. Once I've filtered those out, I need to find three to five solid news articles that haven't been covered too much, then that I can rant about at length. Not always easy. So I'm starting a new segment to the show, Weekly Headlines, which is a bunch of stories that are interesting and I've got some snark for, but just not a full rant. Basically, it's a way to pad out the show with leftovers when there's not enough meat left in the larder. It's the least I can do to reward you guys for the number of donations that came in this past week. From the Weekly Headlines department, Netflix is entering into the realm of mobile gaming. Netflix has introduced five new mobile games offered through its streaming platform as part of an effort to move beyond movies and television. If you're a Netflix subscriber on Android, you can now download Shooting Hoops, Card Blast, Teeter Up, and two Stranger Things games. The company says the games are coming soon to iOS. The games are not available to any kids' profiles, which makes me wonder who Netflix actually thinks plays games on their phones. The FTC has ordered Amazon to return tips stolen from drivers. As Amazon ramped up their delivery program in the wake of the government-induced destruction of all of their small business competition, they introduced Amazon Flex delivery program, bringing the gig economy to the Amazon platform. The company promised wages from $18 to $25 per hour worked and 100% of any tips they received from customers and made similar promises to customers that 100% of tips would go to drivers. So it came as a surprise to many people who still had some misplaced faith in the integrity of large corporations that Amazon was actually pocketing 100% of the tips and using that to pay the driver's base salaries instead. The US FTC brought suit against Amazon in early 2021 for the practice, and this week they settled for just short of $60 million, a drop in the bucket for Bezos. That money will be used to reimburse drivers for the tips they should have received. According to unnamed sources, Amazon intends to pocket the tips paid on the FTC fine. Yahoo has shut down all operations in China. The company has blocked all Chinese IP addresses from accessing its services. Yahoo Mail and News were already unavailable to Chinese users. The company closed its Beijing office in 2015. A Yahoo spokesperson said the reason for the pullout was in recognition of the increasingly challenging business and legal environment and comes as the Chinese Communist Party continues its 2021 crusade of tightening the regulatory screws on any company that dares to have a successful business model. And finally, scam crypto wallets proliferate using Google ads. The Verge warns of a number of crypto wallet scammers that have popped up as the popularity of crypto altcoins increases. The latest scam involves placing a keyword ad for the shitcoin of the week, advertising free and open source wallets, and directing them to the scammer site done up to look as official as possible. 
What happens next is predictable. The unsuspecting victim signs up for a wallet, either using credentials from another wallet, which is promptly cleaned out, or by using their recovery passphrase to create a new wallet, which is promptly cleaned out. As always, the only fix for this is prevention. Cryptocurrency has no FDIC. So if you get scammed, your money is gone. Unnamed sources at Google indicate that the company intends to crack down on these scams just as soon as they stop making a profit on the keyword ads being sold. From the you can't repair greed department, Apple has finally done it. Done what you ask? Put independent repair shops out of business, according to iFixit, who have done their iPhone 13 teardown. What iFixit learned is that the iPhone 13 screen contains a tic-tac-sized microchip that is paired with firmware with the phone. Without that chip, or if it's not paired correctly, the iPhone firmware reports unable to activate Face ID on this phone. Side note, according to the iFixit teardown, the chip is actually not connected to the Face ID scanner at all and isn't involved in the Face ID process, which means it's just a software lock. Authorized Apple repair shops have proprietary software that can pair the chip on the phone, but this tool is of course not available publicly and is of course covered by the DMCA and other copyright enforcement laws, which means that Apple has effectively found a way to use DRM to stop all unauthorized screen repairs. So you might ask, why are screen repairs so important? Well, you'd only ask that if you've never owned an iPhone. If you have, you know that the glass on the front of the iPhone seems to be made of a rare alloy, which is simultaneously the most expensive and most fragile substance on the planet. The screen in an iPhone breaks randomly when dropped from more than an inch, tapped vigorously, or simply looked at incautiously. It's hard to get actual numbers about how often an iPhone screen breaks. According to a 2013 poll of iPhone 6 users from mobileinsurance.co.uk, 23% or nearly a quarter of respondents were walking around with a cracked screen on their iPhone 6, most of whom did not intend to replace it. Remember that the iPhone 6 was the version where Apple made a big deal out of their sapphire glass, which was supposedly much, much stronger than before. I don't know if the percentage of phones whose screen breaks has gone up or down in subsequent versions, but according to unnamed sources, the number is closer to 75% now. Either way, Apple has made quite a business of replacing iPhone screens. An official screen repair at an Apple store will run you $280 for the iPhone 11, 12, or 13 and their Pro versions. The Max, with its bigger screen, is $50 more. Of course, those prices have to be exorbitant in order to push people toward their new Apple Care Plus subscription service. By tacking an extra $200 onto the purchase price of your iPhone 13, or paying $200 from within the phone during the first few weeks of ownership, they'll knock the price of a screen replacement down to a mere $30 for up to two incidents per year. Hint, in case you're still unsure whether Apple expects the screen on your iPhone to break, they have a bulk option on screen repairs. So where does this leave non-Apple repair shops? Well, Apple's always had authorized repair partners, shops that get special certification to do warranty repairs and which fill the gaps caused, in, caused by the fact that there exist iPhone users in places where there aren't Apple stores. Then there's the truly independent shops, the ones which might use a part that's $100 cheaper because it's not made by Apple, but who can tell on the front of the phone? The ones who don't ask for your Apple ID when you walk in, just the device so they can repair it. In 2019, Apple announced a third class of independent repair provider certification that independent shops could get. Independent shops in this program could sign up to be able to do the repairs with official Apple parts on out-of-warranty phones 
for warranty work, you still have to go to an Apple store or an authorized shop since Apple won't reimburse them. But the move was hailed at the time as a big win for right to repair. However, a leaked copy of the contract that shops have to sign, the one that you can't even see until you've signed an NDA that says you're never going to show the contract, showed some really onerous requirements. For example, the shops have to allow Apple to do unannounced audits at any time during the contract and up to five years afterward if you leave the program to check if you have any unauthorized parts in the store. Apple also requires the store collects customers' name, phone number, and home address and can share it with Apple upon request. The store must also get express written acknowledgement that the customer knows they're not getting repairs from an Apple authorized provider and must include signage saying that they're unauthorized in a, an obvious place in near the repair desk, I guess, effectively requiring a repair shop to advertise against itself. Despite the program, it's pretty clear that Apple doesn't want these independent stores to succeed. I called up a local independent repair provider while researching someone in my city the sales guy, who did not know that he was being interviewed for this story, told me the repair on an iPhone 12 Pro would run me $330. When I gasped at the price, he was quick to point out that the cost breakdown was $280 for the glass and $60 for their labor. Let that sink in a moment. Apple is charging their authorized repair shops the same amount for parts as Apple charges for full service, meaning that shops in this program can't possibly be competitive. But now, with the iPhone 13, Apple has finally brought forth the power of DRM to stamp out those pesky cheap parts, undercutting the exorbitant monopolistic price that they charge on parts for their fragile, accident-prone hardware. The people at iFixit point out that this is the doomsday scenario that right-to-repair advocates have been warning us about for a decade, and that this is the reason we needed right-to-repair laws to allow people a choice about where they take a device they paid for to be repaired. Me personally, I'm not quite so alarmist about this. Apple has been overcharging customers and pulling crap like this for nearly two decades. iPhone users had every reason to know when they got in that they'd be price gouged on every accessory, every repair, and every service the company provides. If you want this to stop, then quit buying Apple products. If you keep buying Apple, well, you're gonna keep spending more than you should. It's the free market in action. Don't get me wrong. I think that what companies like Apple and John Deere are doing using copyright law to undermine first sale doctrine is crappy. But if a bad law is being abused, the solution isn't to create a new law. The solution is to fix the bad law. Maybe I'm pipe dreaming here. The copyright law has long in story and Congress is more dysfunctional than ever in its history. But how different would the world be if the DMCA non-circumvention clause could no longer be wielded by corporations like a cudgel? By the way, iFixit did point out that it is theoretically possible to take the microchip off of the broken screen and solder it to the new screen. The process requires micro-soldering, a tedious and difficult process involving a microscope, several hours, and a highly, highly skilled repair technician. A heck of a lot more than a screen replacement without the microchip, which takes 10 to 15 minutes and a little bit of glue. Of course, I guess that approach will still work with non-Apple parts. I mean... If you're really security conscious, you're already logging into your phone with a pin because biometrics are a security risk, in which case losing face ID isn't a big deal at all. From the freaking laser beams department, the U.S. Army has awarded a contract to develop a 300 kilowatt portable laser weapon system, a partnership between General Atomics of San Diego and Boeing 
will deliver a solid-state 300-kilowatt laser combined with a computer-controlled beam director and a radar optics cluster in a package whose prototype looks like a shipping container mounted on the back of a flatbed military truck. A very dangerous shipping container, as it turns out. The weapon is intended to be able to track hostile inbound targets such as missiles and enemy drones or even enemy planes and focus the laser on them to disable or destroy them before they reach the target. It seems like science fiction, but the physics check out, as anybody who has applied 300 kilowatts of energy to sensitive electronics can tell you. The U.S. Navy currently deploys ship-mounted laser systems with a reported power of over 30 kilowatts, used in 2014 in the Persian Gulf, and demonstrated a prototype of 150 kilowatt last year. The 300-kilowatt laser announced by the Army is then the next obvious step in their ongoing alpha male laser measuring contest. The press release did not give a date for when the weapons will be ready to use against American citizens, though an unnamed source within the current administration did tell me that they hope to have the lasers ready soon to counter political unrest such as food riots and Trump rallies. And no, I don't think a 300 kilowatt laser is going to be available on store shelves by Christmas. You have the people trying to shoot down commercial airlines with milliwatt pen lasers to thank for ruining it for all of us. And from the Time Zone Fluid Department, in lieu of my usual semi-annual rant about the idiocy of changing your local time zone twice a year, I thought I'd bring some actual technical information about clocks. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, the daylight saving changeover was a pretty big deal. You had to run around finding every clock in the house, including the one on your wrist, by the way, digital watches were huge in the 80s, and manually change them all by exactly one hour. And if you forgot, your first reminder was Monday morning when you arrived at work or school at the wrong hour, causing a scene, some embarrassment, and a potential tardy slip. But if your house is like mine today, then you don't need that reminder so much. Most of the clocks in the modern world now have some mechanism to update themselves to the new hour, and a few that don't become glaringly obvious that they don't agree with the others. From where I sit at this moment, I can see four distinct timepieces, all of which show the same time, which is... A bit of a minor technological miracle, considering all four have completely different mechanisms for updating for daylight saving. First is my computer, where I'm recording this. Most internet-connected devices get time from the internet using a protocol called Network Time Protocol, or NTP. The computer periodically connects to an online server called an NTP server and performs an exchange as defined in RFC 5905. There will be a test, remember that which ultimately results in my computer knowing the current time. You don't have to think about this because all modern operating systems do it transparently. This machine is running Windows, so it's connecting to the OS default of time.windows.com. But I know I could change servers if I wanted, like if I didn't trust Microsoft. Actually, hold on a moment. I need it. Anyway, the second timepiece is my cell phone in its usual place in the drawer next to me. As part of being a cell phone, it's regularly pinging my nearest cell tower, wherever that is, using a protocol called LTE. Part of the packet that the device gets from the tower is the current time, which the phone uses to set its own clock. One thing you've probably noticed if you do a lot of driving across the country is that your phone also automatically updates itself as you cross time zone boundaries, something that comes for free as it just connects to the next cell phone on the other side of the new time zone. The third timepiece is an electronic weather station mounted on the wall, which shows me the indoor-outdoor temperature, humidity, barometer, wind speed, direction, as measured by a remote sensor outside. Actually, I don't think it gives an indoor wind speed. I hope not. The display also has a clock showing me the current time. 
This clock updates by listening for a particular long-wave radio signal that is constantly broadcasting the current time. In my case, that radio signal is a station called WWVB out of Fort Collins, Colorado, which broadcasts a constant BCD-encoded 60-bit time code on a 60 hertz carrier wave at a rate of 1 BPS, or 1 bit per second. Eat your heart out, old modems. The device captures and decodes this signal and sets the correct time. The only input I had to give it was to tell it which time zone I'm in. By the way, clocks that do this are often marketed as an atomic clock, which is a misnomer. While the WWVB signal does indeed synchronize to an atomic clock in Colorado, the consumer device marketed this way generally have a plain old quartz crystal for keeping time. The fourth timepiece is a standard analog wall clock, which runs on a single AA battery and uses an internal quartz crystal to move the hands at a constant rate. If the clock needs adjusting, if, for example, the U.S. federal government decreed that twice a year I'm suddenly moved to a different time zone for no rational reason, then I have to manually move the hands on the clock to get it to display the correct time. As a computer security expert, I'm always thinking through threat models and attack vectors for everything I do. So here's an interesting thought experiment. Suppose somebody wanted to conduct a PSYOP on you. They wanted to gaslight you into thinking that it's the wrong time. I don't know why. Maybe to get you to go into school late and get a tardy slip. Maybe as part of some larger coordinated effort to institute global communism. I don't know. If they could intercept your internet NTP traffic, if they could set up a Stingray fake cell tower, if they could broadcast a fake radio time code, then they could get the clocks in your house to change on their own and they can mess with your head. Sounds far-fetched? That nobody would ever go to such lengths to screw with your head? That nobody could possibly want to conduct a PSYOP on the entire nation just to confuse, divide, and conquer us? Yeah, I thought that way too back in 2019. Things have changed. And according to unnamed sources, they're already doing it. Oh, and that old unhackable analog wall clock is an important piece of my security arsenal. Big thank you to Raymond Zorger for being the sole executive producer for this episode. Angry Tech News is released on the value for value model. We don't take advertising and we don't charge you to, for, to listen, but we are funded by your donations. So if you got value out of listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send us what you think this show has been worth to you, be it $5, $25, $500, or, hey, shoot for the moon, how about 501 That's it for me. My name is Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com Stay angry Stay angry Stay angry Good day to you. It is time for a BEM rant. So I want to get real world here with you. To start off, understand that I work in a retail environment in Washington State, in the actually in the Puget Sound region specifically. I only bring this up so you can understand my point of view. Uh, we had a tornado warning today. Very uncommon for the Puget Sound region, and in fact, it was localized to only a few towns here, of which, of course, my store happened to be in one of them. So, I feel like this really brings up two points of view. One point of view is, oh my god, we're all going to die, there's a tornado. And the other point of view is, ah, it's more likely I'm going to be struck by lightning than a tornado kills me. To be honest, I totally understand both of these points of view. 
So I want to look at this from the corporate standpoint. There's a warning from an official source saying to be careful, there might be a tornado. We should take every precaution to make sure our customers are all right. Sure, we might get a bit of bad will for being closed for a couple customers because we're being overly cautious. But you know what? It's worth the risk. What happens if we stayed open and someone got injured or killed due to us ignoring the warnings? We'd get destroyed via media, social media, any other media that you want to talk about. So really what I guess I'm saying is, yeah, we closed. Fucking deal. Don't be the asshole who comes in yelling at me. I'm the representative of my company, of course, because we inconvenienced your day due to motherfucking nature. Are we being overcautious? Yeah, of course we are. Are we telling you what to do with your life? No, just don't fucking do it here. I guess really the moral of the story is don't be an asshole. I mean, there's probably more to this moral, but that's really where I want to stop.